In the book of Judges, when I was in seminary, they taught us a really good way to view the book of Judges as an overall pattern. Uh, the, the way that the book of Judges starts is Israel was in a bad time, and, and there's a key verse that says they didn't have a king, and so everybody just did whatever he thought was right. Now, you can imagine the chaos that when everybody gets to make their own rules and everybody says, well, that may be your truth, but that's not my truth. And so, so you can live that way, but I'm not going to live that way. Well, that is where Israel was. And so uh, Dr. Van Horn said that the book of Judges is a book of the sword, S-W-O-R-D. And he said the pattern throughout the book of Judges is God's people sinned, that's the S. And then God's wrath, his discipline, his judgment fell on them. And then there was the oppression of uh, pagan neighbors that God used to discipline them. So S-W-O, and then R is repentance. The people would say, God, we've messed up. We have, we have made some awful choices. We have wandered from you. We've got to get back on the right path. And then the D is the deliverance. God would say, hey, I'll take you back. I, I, I've got grace and mercy. I'm quick to forgive. I'm ready to take you back. And so there's the deliverance. So if you're reading through the book of Judges, you can see that pattern going on regularly. There's sin. There's wrath. There's oppression. There's repentance. And then there's deliverance. It's just a cycle that makes its way all the way through there. It's, it's just uh, a, you know, a repeating occurrence here. And so when J Judges chapter 6 opens, the Israelites were under the oppression of the Midianites. The Midianites were cruel. A lot of the Old Testament people were. The Assyrians probably were the cruelest of, of all the, you know, the people that attacked Israel and, and the, wor the world power. They were just you know, the most evil, which is why Jonah didn't want to go preach to them. He said, God, they, these are the worst people on the planet. If I go preach, I know how you are. You'll forgive them, and I don't want you to forgive them. I want you to judge them. And so I don't even want them to have a chance to repent. And so the Midianites were kind of in that vein of being really cruel. And one of the ways that they would oppress the Israelites is that they would let them plow their fields. They would let them plant their crops. They would let them do all of the work getting ready for the harvest. And then just before the harvest, they would come in and destroy their fields. They wouldn't, you know, they wouldn't just uh, ravage the ground so that, so that uh, the Israelites wouldn't even try to grow anything. They, to inflict even more suffering, they would let them go through all of that work and then destroy their crops right before they were ready to be harvested. And so we pick up the story with Gideon. That, that really what I've just read or what I've just told you is in the first uh, ten verses of Judges chapter 6. And then beginning in Judges chapter 6 verse 11, the Bible says, The angel of the Lord came, and he sat under the oak that was in Ophrah, which belonged to Joash, the Abysrite. His son Gideon was threshing wheat in the winepress in order to hide it from the Midianites. So here's Gideon. He's somehow been able to, to get a little plot of wheat grown. And so he's harvested it, but he didn't want the Midianites to come and burn it. So a winepress was a hole in the ground where they would stomp on the grapes and and you know, get get the wine ready. And so he was he was hiding down in, in the ground so that if any of the Midianites were watching, they would not see the, the grain being threshed. And so he's down there in a hole in the ground. 
The Bible says in verse 12, Then the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, The Lord is with you, valiant warrior. Gideon said to him, Please, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened? And where are all his wonders that our fathers told us about? They said, Hasn't the Lord brought us out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and handed us over to Midian. Gideon's response was fairly predictable. The angel appeared to him in a hole in the ground, and he said, hey, the Lord's with you. He said, if the Lord's with me, why am I in a hole in the ground? You ever ask that question? God, if you love me, why did this happen? God, if you're for me, why didn't this happen? I mean, God, I hear all these promises about how good you are and, and other people have shared their blessings and, and ways that God is, has worked in their lives, but God, none of that seems to be happening to me. And that's the way that, that Gideon did not respond with a, oh, thou, thou art wonderful, angel. Thank, I thank thou for visiting me. The angel said, hey, God's with you. He said, I don't see that. My circumstances don't seem to say that God is with me. He may have been with our forefathers when he got them out of Egypt, but he's not with me right now. That's the way he felt. Verse 14 says, The Lord turned to him and said, Go in the strength that you have and deliver Israel from the grasp of Midian. I am sending you. He said, Look, the angel said, Things are about to change. You're not going to be in this hole in the ground much longer. God's people have realized the sinfulness of their ways, and they are calling out for deliverance. They're saying, God, we are turning back to you, and God's going to give them another chance, and he is going to give them another chance through you, Gideon. You're going to be the spearhead that, that leads Israel's army out against the, the Midianites. Verse 15 says, he said to him, please, Lord, how can I deliver Israel? Look, my family is the weakest in Manasseh, which was a very small tribe, and I am the youngest in my father's family. He said, You're, you've got to be kidding me. I don't have any standing. I, my, my, first of all, I'm not from Judah. I'm not from one of these prominent tribes. I'm from Manasseh, the little bitty tribe. And on top of that, my family isn't prominent. And even if my family were prominent, I'm the youngest son. There's no way that, that I am going to be the one. Maybe an older brother, maybe somebody from another tribe, but not me. But I will be with you, verse 16 says. Uh, uh, but, but I will be with you, the Lord said to him. You will strike Midian down as if it were one man. Then he said to him, then Gideon said to the angel, If I have found favor with you, give me a sign that you are speaking with me. Gideon said, I'm not sure about this. You're going to have to assure me. You're going to have to give me some, some certainty here. So give me a sign that, you, that you're really a supernatural being speaking with me. Please don't leave this place. Until I return to you, let me bring my gift and set it before you. And he said, I will stay until you return. So Gideon went and prepared a young goat and unleavened bread from a half bushel of flour. He placed the meat in a basket and the broth in a pot. He brought them out and offered them to him under the oak. The angel of God said to him, take the meat with the unleavened bread, put it on this stone and pour the broth on it. So he did that. So he put the, the meat, the sacrifice on a rock, and he poured the little the broth on top of it. Verse 21 says, The angel of the Lord extended the tip of the staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened bread. Fire came up from the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened bread. Then the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. So Gideon said, If you want me to do this, you're going to have to give me a sign. The angel said, No problem. Brought the, brought the sacrifice. 
He touched it with his stick. Fire came up, and then the angel, I picture him, you know, going up in the smoke, you know, just descending up into heaven with the smoke. When Gideon realized that he was the angel of the Lord, he said, Oh, no, Lord God, I've seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, Peace be to you. Don't be afraid. You, you will not die. So Gideon built an altar to the Lord there and called it, The Lord is Peace. It's still there today. So Gideon has this initial call, and the angel tells him, You're going to be the one to lead the Israelite army against the Midianites. Well, then some time passes, a little bit of time passes, and Gideon's about to get his army together. I'm going to summarize what happens in chapter 7 here. Gideon started sending out the word, hey, we're going to fight the Midianites, and so if you are tired of their oppression, come down and get ready. You know, we're, we're going to fight them. And so 32,000 men showed up. Now, the Midianites had nearly 200,000 men, so already the Israelites are outnumbered. It's nearly 200,000 versus 32,000. And so Gideon's getting ready to give them a pep talk. They watched, you know, the Rocky movies, Rudy, things like that, so they could really get fired up. And then the Lord said to him, you've got too many men. <clears throat> Lord, now I don't know if you've done much in the area of warfare, <laughs> but they've got nearly 200,000 soldiers over there. We're outnumbered about six to one already. We've got 32,000. And the Lord said, you've got too many. Tell everybody who's afraid that they can go home. Now, that's a, that's a large category dismisser right there. Hey, uh, if anybody's afraid that a sword or a spear might, might kill them, uh, go on home. And so they go on home. And then Gideon says, the Lord keeps, keeps bringing it down. At that point, there were 10,000. And then the Lord said, you still got too many. Lord, now it's, it's about 20 to 1. He said, here's what I want you to do. Go down to the water and tell everybody to get a drink. And everybody that gets on all fours and puts their face into the water and slurps it up, you tell them they're going to go home. And everybody that kind of kneels down and, and drinks water like this, you tell them that they're going to stay. And so Gideon is watching everybody, and he sees everybody just burying their faces, you know, in the water. Well, shoot, there goes another. There goes another. <laughs> People look like you're from steam. Come on, get them, drink it. Drink it, you know, like a human being, not like an animal. And so nine of the 10,000, 9,700 put their faces in the water slurped it up, and only 300 drank like this. And, and then the Lord said, now you're ready to go fight. The odds, I figured this up, I did a little math. The odds are 450 to 1. One soldier for every 450 Midianites. It's just coincidence, I think, but, you know, Elijah faced the 450 prophets of Baal. And so there's that, that ratio again. And now Gideon is ready to go out to battle. And he says, Lord, you're going to have to give me another sign. Now that, I, now that I know what I'm facing, I need another sign. So here's what I want you to do. 
I'm going to take this fleece and I'm going to put it out on the ground. And tomorrow morning, I want all of the ground to be dry. And I want that fleece to be wet. And so the Lord said, okay, I'll do that. And so the next morning, Gideon woke up and he took that fleece and he squeezed it and filled up a whole bowl. I mean, it wasn't just a little, it wasn't damp. It was so much water in it, he could fill up a bowl. But then Gideon said, well, I made a mistake because the ground probably dries faster than the fleece. So tomorrow morning, Lord, I want the fleece to be dry and I want the ground to be wet. And so the Lord said, all right. And so the next day, that's exactly what happened, exactly the opposite. Now the fleece was bone dry and the ground was still wet with dew. So now Gideon, okay, the Lord said, did you still need another sign? I sure do, Lord. <laughs> Would you just give me one more? Just give me one more sign. He said, sneak down to the Midianite camp and just listen to what you hear. And so Gideon creeps along and he gets down there. And one of the Midianites is talking to another one. He's had a dream. And he said, man, I had this dream that a big loaf of bread came down and it landed on us and it just crushed us. And the other guy said, well, I know what that dream means. That's Gideon. He's going he's gonna to tear us up tomorrow. And Gideon finally said, well, the Lord must be in this. And so he took his 300 men, and they went to battle, and they won. There are some lessons that I want to share from Gideon's life that have been meaningful to me. First, taking risks for God is fearful. When, when God asks us, to step out of our comfort zones, to do some things that we haven't done, to do some things that we haven't done and might not want to do. That's a fearful step. I acknowledge that. The Lord acknowledges that. He, he, doesn't, he doesn't say through Scripture, come on, you, you know better than that. He acknowledges, hey, I'm calling you to do some things that I know can be fearful. That's why I'm telling you, don't be afraid. Taking risks, when you sense God stirring and asking you, calling you, commanding you to take a step onto ground that seems to be unsteady and unstable, that can be very fearful. But the part of God's Word that I absolutely cannot get is that the nearer we are to God, the more fearful things He asks us to do. People who say, God, I, I really don't remember the last time God asked me to do something that made me uncomfortable, and I would do some examination and say, well, how close am I? Because the nearer we are to God, you look, Abraham, Noah, Moses, Daniel, Joseph, I mean, you start going through those characters that they don't they don't slide through on easy pathways. They're regularly called to do things that are fearful. And one of the reasons that taking risks is fearful is because there is a possibility it won't work out it won't work out the way you want it to. That's that's the part of the risk. The taking a step of faith means 
this may not turn out the way that I want it to. Maybe it's going to turn out the way that God wants it to. But it may not turn out the way that I want it to. It's a fearful thing to take a risk. That's why there's not ever been a teenage boy who's ever asked a girl to go out with him before he has not done some sort of investigative work to see if she will say yes. He doesn't, he doesn't want to go to somebody, especially in front of a big group of people, hey, would you, would you want to go to prom with me and have her in front of all? No, I don't want to. I'm not going to do that ever. <laughs> he, he, he is going to ask, he's going to get his best friend to ask her best friend to ask her, if I ask her, will she say yes? Because part of the risk is that you know it might not turn out the way that you want it. I mean, there is a chance that Gideon could have been killed in battle, right? I mean, God said, hey, I'm going to lead you. I mean, I'm going to use you to lead the Israelites, but there's not a guarantee and there's not a promise that says, hey, you're going to come right back home. He just said, I'm sending you out to, to, to if that's the president telling I'll call him back. <laughs> He said, I'm sending you to lead the, the Israelite army out. But there's not one word in here that says, and you're going to come right back home to a big parade. Now, sometimes God does provide that. Sometimes he does add to the promise. But not always. Taking risks is fearful. The second thing that I want you to see from Gideon's life is that taking risks is essential if we're going to ever have more than we have. What I mean by that is if we are unwilling to take a step forward, then all we ever have is what we currently have. Now, now Gideon here in this passage could have said, I'm not going to do it. I don't believe it about There's a chance that I might be killed. Yes, I'm in a hole in the ground. I'm having to, I'm having to thresh my wheat down here so that the Midianites won't see. But at least I'm alive. At least I know what I have. But as long as we hold on to what we know we have, we never get anything better. God never teaches us new lessons. He never, he never stretches us. He never takes us to a new he never, as long as we say, I'm just going to stay with what is comfortable, then God says, well, then that's what you shall have. But no more. You, you can stay, and when you hear me calling you to take an uncertain step, you can disobey if you want. But as long as you hold on to what you have, and are unwilling to let it go, I, I can't put anything new into your hand. If, if you're always, here's what I've got, I'm just, I'm terrified that I'm going to lose it. You can't put anything in anybody's hands like this. Only when they're willing to say, God, you can have it. I'm terrified. My knees are knocking together. But God, I really think this is what you're saying. You can have it. That's the way that God says, now I can get you. Now I can lead you farther along the path. Taking risks is essential if God is ever going to work more deeply in our lives. And I, I mean, you, 
I'm sure you have too. I've seen so many people through the years that have been fearful that doing what God wanted them to do would not turn out the way that they wanted if they said no. And as a result, they stuck with what they had, but not what God could give. I grew up in a really small church over in West Point, and so we never really had a lot of youth activities. But there was a doctor in West Point, Dr. Powell, who had a, a cabin up on Pickwick Lake. And so every summer, he would, he would take us up there to go skiing, you know, on his little boat. And so I had never water skied before, but, but I learned it, you know, and I enjoyed it. And uh, then a couple of summers after that, we went back up there, and there was a, a new little seventh grade girl who had moved up named Haley Higginbotham. She grew, she grew up next door to us. Her, her dad, um, Travis Higginbotham, was the principal at West Point High School. And so let me tell you how I grew up. On, on this side was the principal of the high school. On this side was the assistant principal of the high school. So there was no chance at high school of doing anything wrong without you know, getting it you know, home to my parents. And so... Um, Haley went with us, and she never had water skied before, but she was terrified, but wanted to do it. And she was, she was afraid that the life jacket wouldn't hold her up. You know, she was afraid that, hey, if I'm, if I'm out in the water, I mean, this is a big lake, I'm afraid that, that if I'm not holding on to something, that I'm going to go down. Now, Haley, in the seventh grade, and she's still small, but at that time, she was just a little bone. And so we barely even could get a life jacket, you know, to go on. And when she went into the water, the life jacket popped up here, you know, and her little head's down here. And so she looks like Ichabod Crane, you know, without a head out there. And so Dr. Powell threw the rope out there, and he started to swing the boat around. And said, now, look, when that, when that rope comes, you know, comes to you, you throw it over one ski and hold it, and then I, and I'm going to pull you up and... Um, and so she tried it several times, you know, but, but I mean, the moment, the moment he started pulling, just straight over. And so he said, you're standing up too soon. You're standing up too soon. Don't, don't stand up too soon. Let the, let the rope pull you up. And so Haley, the next time, got that rope, and she waited for the, uh, for the boat to go. And so she kind of got up a little bit, you know, just barely, and then she went over. But Dr. the last Dr. Powell had seen, hey, she's coming on up. And so he's just, you know, pulling that boat along. And Haley is no longer on the ski. She's faced forward. But, but Dr. Powell's at the front. We were saying, hey, stop, stop, stop. And then we realized he's not stopping. He's probably trying to increase, you know, insurance claims or something. <laughs> and so we're looking back at Haley saying, let go of the rope. But she was holding on to that with water was just plowing, you know, her face. She was holding on. And then let go of the rope. Little fish were swimming by her. Let go. Let go. But she would not let go. She was determined. I am holding on to this. And she was drowning. And that's the way a lot of people are in life. They are holding on to for fear of letting go. They are drowning. Taking risks 
hearing God speak to us and say, I want you to take a step, and I know it's uncomfortable. I know it is a fearful step. But if you want more from me, that's what you've got to do. And some people say, I just will not do it. And they don't ever get any more. The people who say, God, I don't know where you're leading me. I don't know how you're leading me. But I know that you are leading me. And so I will take this risk, but not to be foolish or irrational, but because it's what you're telling me to do. It's essential if we ever want more out of our relationship with God. Taking risks is fearful. Taking risks is essential for God to work more deeply in our lives. Third, Taking risks gives God the chance to prove how faithful he is. The only person who got the credit in this story is God. Gideon and those 300 soldiers did not come back home and say, hey, let me tell you all what we did. Because everybody knew 300 cannot fight 200,000. God did that. God won that victory. He used you to do it. But God came through for us. Israel's history wouldn't have that story if Gideon and his men did not go out to the battlefield. Their going out to the battlefield gave God one more opportunity to say, let me show you what I can do with your blessing. Let me show you how I don't need, I don't need 32,000 men. I don't need 10,000 men. I really don't even need the 300. I just want you to be out there so you can watch what I'm doing. Those experiences, when we are willing to say, God, my knees are knocking together, my feet are trembling, but you're calling me to go forward, and that's where I'm going, gives God the opportunity to prove again what he can do and what he will do. I got those experiences. You have those experiences. You have those moments when you knew, God, this is this is not at all what what I wanted, but it's what you seem to want. I'll go forward. Just do what you do. Uh, the Wilkinsons were at Mount Vernon when I left there. Uh, it was a really, it was just a, it was a bad time uh, that, for me there. Um, we got a new pastor coming in, and before he would come, he said, everybody that worked here has got to go because I'm bringing in my own people. And so I had been there for 13 years. I started there as a college student. It was really all that I knew. And so when, when I got that word, I was really, I was distraught because I said, I, I don't even know what I'm going to do. They, you know, the time limit on, on being out of there was really soon. And so I said, I'm, I'm not going to make a bad decision because I have to make a quick one. I'm, I'm not going to find another church in two months. It may be a horrible church. So, so I'm just going to travel and speak until I find what God wants me to do next. I was, clear, I was clear that that's the next step that God wanted for me. But I was really fearful about that because that when you work in a church, 
uh, when I, I mean, I got a paycheck the first and the 15th, no matter what. If I was sick or if I was gone, first and the 15th, I got a check every month. But when you travel and speak for a living, you don't get a check the first and the 15th. You get a check when you go speak. And I didn't have to make a lot of money, but I, I, at least I knew what I was making. But I knew that that's what God was telling me to do. And he and I wrestled. I did not shake my fist at God and say, God, now I, I don't want to do that. But I will confess to you, I was terrified. Because I didn't know if anybody would call. I didn't know if anybody would would say, hey, look, you, you come speak for hours. I mean, I just, I just didn't know. And so with that in mind, I said, God, I'm, I'm trusting you to do what you do and take care of me. And so Mississippi is a small state in Baptist life, and so word began circulating what had happened to me. And Miss um, Joyce Petros was one of our ladies in the office, and if I had my door closed because I was talking on the phone, she would just, you know, get those little pink telephone pads and write up so-and-so called, you know, lots of women celebrities were constantly calling. <laughs> and so she would, you know, hand up, she would just take it to the door. That Monday, after I had announced, hey, I'm, I'm leaving here, the phone never stopped ringing. And when I opened the door, right before lunch to get the message. They went from the from the where it said Gary Clementer on the door down to the floor and then another column. And I started calling those and some were just, hey man, I'm sorry, whatever I can do. But there literally were people saying, we don't have an event that you can speak at scheduled. But you tell us a night free and we'll plan. You tell us any night that you don't have something going on, and we will put it on the calendar today. That was God doing that. The only explanation for how that story worked its way through was the Lord was doing that. I wish that I could tell you that at every point along the way, whenever I been in those uncomfortable or fearful positions that I said, well, Lord, you've always done it. I'm going straight ahead. But I fight the same battle every time. But what I have discovered, and you have and will, is that when we say, God, I don't even know how this is going to turn out, but it's what you are asking me to do. It's what you're asking us to do. That, that gives God the chance to say, let's clear the stage I'm about to show you. I'm about to show you again how even when it seems impossible, that is nothing for me. Let me go to work. And those are the lessons that I think Gideon's life teaches us. It teaches us about when our knees are trembling and our legs are shaking that we keep going forward and watching God do what he does and give us more than we have. Is there anything that you want to share before we go? Any announcements before Sunday? Hey, I will tell you, uh, the next two Sundays I'm going to preach on discipleship. We're going to look at the same passage both Sundays. I split it in half, Mark chapter 3, verses 13 through 19, and we're going to talk about 
uh, the kinds of people that Jesus calls to be disciples on Sunday. And then on the 31st, we're going to talk about, well, once he calls you, what does it mean to be a disciple? What do you do as a disciple? And I've been working on these messages, and I like them. And so I hope you'll join us for that. And then I, I assume that most of you here are Sunday school attenders. But where the real death in your faith comes is in a smaller group context. And so if you're not a regular Sunday school person, give us a shot so that you can be in a group that is discussing and talking and, and uh, processing what God's Word says in a little different environment. Anything else before we go? All right, well, let's stand up, and I'll pray for you. Father, every single time um, that you have been put to the test, you have come through. You promised that, and you never failed. Your track record is 100% perfect. Uh, despite that, God, I have to confess for myself, and maybe for uh, some people here, we still look at big steps of faith and don't take them immediately. We have to think about them and, and wrestle a little bit, but... Lord, we want to be people who are resolved and determined. We want to move forward so that you can give us the abundance and fullness that is found in Jesus Christ. And so help us not only to do that for ourselves, but to lead others to do it as well. Lord, for the rest of the week, we're going to, we are going to be around other people. Help us to represent you well. Help us to uh, be light, uh, people of grace and truth, and then bring us back Sunday ready to worship you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.